Baseball is back, and so is MLB.tv. Watch every out-of-market, regular season game on your favorite streaming devices. Anywhere, anytime, all season long. Follow the action live or on demand. Track four games at once with multi-view mode. And catch up with in-game highlights. Plus, original programs, minor league broadcasts, and local pre- and post-game shows. Go to MLB.tv to start your free trial today. Blackout and other restrictions apply. Major League Baseball trademarks used with permission. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Good evening and welcome to Amplify, a telephone talk show that looks at life from a religious perspective. I'm Father Ron Lingwin, hoping that you have felt the warmth of God's love in your life this day, but especially the joy you feel when you share God's love with others. As we do each week, I'd like to begin our program with a story that is based on faith and formed with imagination. A woman who was weeping came to Jesus. Master, she said, I am a sinful woman. Dry your tears, Jesus replied. But she continued to cry and said, You have not heard me. I am a sinful woman. Again, I say, woman, dry your tears. John and Peter helped the woman up. Jesus said, come, sit with me. No, she answered, for I will taint you. Jesus shook his head and asked, woman, have you no faith? And then he raised his hand, and Peter and John knew that he wished to be alone with the woman. She said, master, I have seen you cast the evil one out of many people. I come to you with a sorrowful heart, for I know I am possessed with all the evils of the world. And then all at once she began to laugh and laugh and laugh and laugh. Jesus raised his hand and said, In the name of the Father, I command this evil to come forth from this woman. The woman began to laugh even harder. Jesus continued again, I say, leave and do not return. Again, the woman began to laugh even harder and mock him and shout unspeakable words. Then Jesus said firmly, in the name of my father, I say, leave this woman. Let her heart become pure, her mind become clear, and let her soul become free of your clutches. The woman fell to the ground and began to weep. But this time Jesus did not help her up until she was spent. And then when there were no more tears and the weeping had stopped, Jesus helped her up and said, Woman, go and sin no more. She looked into Jesus' eyes and said, Master, what have I done to deserve this? Jesus shook his head and said, Woman, woman, there is much we do not understand, but I tell you this, go in peace and thank the Heavenly Father. Sin no more. Have an open heart and mind. 
When you see evil, curse it. When you hear evil words, deafen your ears. When you see evil, call out to the Father. The woman looked at Jesus and slowly a tear began to form in her eyes. She bent down and kissed his hand and said, Truly, truly, you are the light of the world. Jesus said, Let no darkness ever cloud your path. A story of rife and imagination. Our guest this evening writes among the closing words of the introduction to his latest book titled Immortal Combat Confronting the Heart of Darkness. Modern Christianity has lost sight of its true purpose and mission. Twisted into political activism, therapeutic bromides, and sentimental subjective devotions, infected with silly New Age self-help theories, and weighed down with internal quarrels, immorality, and corruption, Christians are confused and bewildered, knocked sideways by the modern world with its strident ideologies and shallow solutions. The only thing that will save us is to turn back on the plastic Disneyland of the surface world and enter into the realms that lie beneath. There we will face the dark violence and deep deceptions of the human heart and come once again to the true meaning of this event at the center of time, which we call, which we recall with the crucifix. The only thing that will save us is to contemplate the cross, recognizing it as the turning point of history, the climax of the ancient conflict and the ground of immortal combat. Our only hope is to grasp the true meaning of what happened on that hilltop outside Jerusalem 2,000 years ago and to understand how it is more relevant and vital today than it has ever been. And once we have grasped it with our hearts and minds, it will be our task to grasp it with our whole being and take up that cross as a drowning man would cling to a piece of wreckage. The author of those words and our guest this evening is Father Dwight Longenecker. He earned a degree in speech and English before studying theology at Oxford University. He served as a priest in the Church of England before he and his family were received in the Catholic Church in 1995. He's the author of over 20 books and booklets on Catholic faith and culture, as well as thousands of articles for various magazines, journals, and websites. He's an award-winning blogger, podcaster, journalist, and the pastor of Our Lady of the Rosary Church in Greenville, South Carolina. He and his wife, Allison, and he have four grown children. Father Dwight Longenecker, welcome to Amplify. Thank you. Thanks for the invitation. Tell us how, with, with what concern did you write this book, and perhaps other books, your many books, concerning a lack of understanding in people's faith today? Yes, uh, you know, I'm very interested in language and how we use language, especially religious language. And so I hear um, Christians say phrases like, Jesus died to save you from your sins, or you need to get saved. Uh, And we Catholics would use the terminology, 
behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And if I were uh, a modern person and an unbeliever, but not necessarily opposed to religion, but just didn't know very much about it, I, I would have some questions. I, I would say, um, what does that actually mean? Jesus died to save me from my sins. How does the death of a revolutionary 2,000 years ago um, take away the, the naughty things I've done? Uh, help me here, you know, and it's a good question. Uh, and then if they were to talk to the Catholic about the talk of the Lamb of God, they would say, you're talking about animal sacrifice here, aren't you? And we don't do that anymore. You know, we, we don't cut the slit the throat of, of chickens and 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 uh, offer you know their their heart to the the, the sun god or something. Uh, we we don't do. And furthermore, you're talking about human sacrifice, aren't you? And we, what is that about? Uh, well, you know, we're space age people, not stone age people. Um, what does all this talk about sacrifice and so forth? And I think these are good questions and. So I wanted to um, approach this this topic and uh, also point out that I think uh, one of the responses modern Christians have had was to say, yes, that's true, all this talk about sacrifice and, and blood sacrifice, that's old-fashioned stuff. Uh, we don't do that anymore. So let's make Christianity into this nice religion where we, we just are, talk about how to be nicer people and make the world a better place. Well, um, I, I don't agree with that. And so I... I think the talk of sacrifice and so forth is actually more important than ever before. And so I wrote this book trying to draw together some various thinkers and various approaches um, so that modern people can actually understand what we mean by this this ancient concept. And um, as you point out in the book, it's uh, quite a challenge that we face in doing that. How does one make sense? You raise the question of a of a Stone Age religion in a scientific age especially when the modernist Bible scholars stripped out all the miracle stories as you would cut, up, cut the rust out of an old car, uh, that they were, they were desperate to make Christianity relevant, you believe. And it, it has been a disaster. And so as you've explained, uh, this book is an attempt to drive home not only what sacrifice means, but also what it does. And that, yeah. uh, that your book is not a theology book. I kidded about this uh, with you on the on on the phone beforehand uh, because it, it to me it's what real it, it's real theology uh, that if you read this book seriously you're going to be shaken and troubled to the cure to the core you point out and that uh, there are there are important lessons to be learned and in some sense they are theological and and well, they they are you know father but. I really have an, a passion to write, uh, to, to, to try to communicate complex uh, ideas and concepts to ordinary people. So I wrote this as an audience, envisioning my audience being the people that I speak to at conferences, ordinary folks from the pew who come out to learn more about their faith. Um, so it's not written for an academic audience or for, you know, there's not lots of theological jargon and footnotes and, every, and everything. Right. Um, I've tried to make it really approachable for people. But um, I'm an ordinary people, and and uh, you gave me some some deeper understanding into uh, the way in which our faith can be expressed. And you used yes. some modern idioms. You you indicate that we must use imagination to truly grasp the mysterious meaning of Christ's sacrifice. And 
one of the persons that you yourself rely on is Dante, who you believe is a masterpiece of theological uh, poetry. And, yes. and, and and let me just, here's the kind of, if you go through the book, these are the kind of images that uh, that uh, Father Langenegger writes about. He, he, he states that we have not beaten our swords into plowshares, rather we've beaten them into pacifiers. Explain a little bit about that. <laughs> well, a pacifier, is, of course, is, is what a baby sucks on um, to, to try to get some comfort, but there's no nutrition in it. Uh, and uh, this is what we've turned our religion into in many ways, just something to suck on and, and, and uh, keep ourselves quiet but there's no real nutrition in it. And that's because we've got rid of the cross. We've got rid of the crucifixion of our Lord because a, modern, a lot of modern theologians and churchmen have not really known what to do with this concept of blood sacrifice. So they've, they've put it on one side and sort of relegated it to, to the grandma's attic uh, and got on with, with what they perceived modern religion to be, which is um, getting involved in social welfare and making the world a better place and so forth. But you see, the problem with that is that um, it's not actually religion. It, it, it's just good works, and you don't have to go to church on a Sunday to do all that. And so people aren't stupid. They soon realize that uh, they can be nice people and, and work at the food pantry and help the homeless and run charity and do good stuff without going to church on a Sunday. Um, and so uh, I'm trying to get back and say, no, actually, uh, religion should be about religion. It's about this interface with God and man. Uh, it's about the forgiveness of sins. It's about facing the darkest side of our nature uh, and finding redemption uh, through it all. And this, of course, is a great drama. I use a lot of uh, illustrations from literature and drama and film because, uh, as you've pointed out, the imagination gives us access to these deep areas of life in a way that uh, purely the intellect does not. It was fascinating uh, for me once again uh... I'm a great student of divine providence as it, as it plays its way out in, uh, in my own life and uh, hopefully as I see it in others. And uh, when um, you come to the end of the book, you're going to begin to, one will understand, I believe, what uh, Lucifer's strategy is in life. And he has a plan, really has a plan, but that God has a plan. And that's what we're talking about. We'll be talking about that God has a plan, and you and you write curiously uh, that there is a cosmic virus that is a reflection of the battle between heaven and earth, between God and and Lucifer, and to me uh, this program is following at, at a perfect time um, because of all the violence we see across the country. Um, over what was certainly an evil in itself, the death of a man while he was uh, under complete control of, of the police. And, I, and I've seen over the past few weeks how the program that, that I selected but nevertheless didn't know what was happening at the time or what would happen was about the, the coronavirus. But now it's about evil in another form. And who would have thought that our attention would have been taken away from coronavirus at all uh, to what to the evil that has expressed itself in, in various ways? And, and there is a sense in which um, Lucifer 
is the originator of all evil, isn't he? One of the things I talk about in the book is um, the concept of resentment. And resentment is not just feeling bad because somebody got a bigger piece of pie than you did. Resentment is this um, uh, cancer within the human heart, which is this gnawing away within us of feeling that we've been hard done by, that somebody owes us something, that it's somebody else's fault, uh, and we moan and groan and, and whine that we other, somebody has done us wrong. And as long as that resentment is burning in our hearts, uh, it will eventually um, find its way out in violence. And that's what we're seeing erupting in our cities across the, the nation at the moment. Um, there's a large proportion of our population, and they're not all the poor or the underclass or the racial minorities. There's a good number of other um, protesters, and we see this when we look at the, the social makeup of the protesters. They're, they're not all um, you know, inner-city uh, racial minority people. There, there are a whole range of people here, and these are very often people who feel resent, carry resentment in their hearts. And they, they think that the world owes them a living, uh, and they think that they've been hard done by. Now, sometimes they have been hard done by, and, and, and their, their resentment is justified. But this resentment that um, brews away within us, unless we find forgiveness and we find reconciliation, that resentment will only eventually get worse, uh, and it will eventually erupt in violence. You indicate that we need to pay attention to Old Testament characters and that you're not calling for a return to the scaffold and the stake, but for for the baptized uh, to realize that all of us are called to be warriors and not wimps. To fight successfully, you, you write, we must understand the true darkness and depth of the depravity that we face, that we need to pay attention to the symptoms of a deeper illness in our race, the sin of the world, And um, when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about how you study the mythical monstrous forms uh, in making us blind to uh, the real identity of who the enemy is and how it is that he remains visible. When you point out that if you know your Bible history, you will remember from the beginning, war is the plot and war is the purpose. The Bible is not a collection of sentimental stories about people who discovered a wonderful spirituality. It is the chronicle of war. It is the record of brutal, seemingly endless cosmic combat taking place in the gritty reality of human history. We're going to take this break and we'll be back. Welcome back to uh, Amplify. Our guest is Father Dwight Loggenecker. We're talking about his book titled Immortal Combat, subtitled Confronting the Heart of darkness, and um, he uses myth. He's told us already images and how we can understand the true nature of of evil. And in the Minotaur and the Labyrinth, he uses the example of a bullfight in which the bull becomes an image of the divine. And uh, the Minotaur is always hungry to devour the innocent. The Labyrinth is not only the lower level of the world, but the application to us is it's our underworld also. It's a world of false images, lies, and deceptions. It's full of traps, and uh, Lucifer hates to be exposed. He, does, the, he doesn't want us to know the truth. But then he writes in a, a chapter called The Dragon in the Garden. An exorcist told me something I will never forget. He said, the ministry of exorcism is dirty, disgusting, and exhausting work. 
A real exorcism, he said, is a knockdown, bare knuckles, snarling, hand-to-hand combat with the devil. You fight amidst the stench of hell. And worst of all is the fact that you lose track of where you are. You seem to be in a wilderness with no points of reference. There is no logic or reasoning. Nothing to be predicted and planned. You're wrestling on quicksand. Everything slips and slides. There is no foothold. It is like grappling with an octopus in oil in the dark. Try to understand that image. And we're talking here about the Garden of Eden, aren't we, Father? Hello? He dropped off. Somewhere we need to find, we'll get him back. Um, so he's talking here about the Garden of Eden, his, and he's talking about um, Lucifer indicating that his whole personality is an extraordinary, complex network of lies as deep as the pits of hell and as vast as the everlasting dark. He is a liar. His realm is chaos and also um, destruction. Uh, Again, Father Dwight Longenecker, uh, Immortal Combat. I mentioned, I, I just gave a brief about the Minotaur in the Labyrinth and how we can understand something of the true nature on evil through this myth that you explained, would that we could uh, talk about the the program all night long and not just for the two 40-minute segments uh, because it would take us really to do that. And But we can appreciate uh, the book just from the segments we're able to talk about. And I read the, the beginning of uh, Chapter 3, The Dragon in the garden, and you're talking here about the Garden of Eden, aren't you? Yes, and um, through the first half of the book, I used a lot of uh, imagery from uh, Greek myth and from J.R. Tolkien and uh, film and stories, but to try to um, open up people's way of seeing this, these topics from a, from a new perspective, and to use this language, which is actually language which has been used in the Christian Church down through the ages, in the liturgy, in the scriptures, uh, in the writing of the poets, in the writing of our theologians. And it's only, you know, comparatively recently that we've um, made it all very intellectual and and, um, abstract. Uh, And so I've been trying to go back and use uh, story and use imagery to be able to um, help people to connect, to see the, the, the power of these stories and the power of the battle that we're actually talking about. And uh, you do it so well, so very, very well. What are some of the ground rules of Immortal Combat, which is a title of your book, that we can draw from uh, the dragon in the garden, from the Garden of Eden? Well, the very, the very first um, thing I've laid down is to say, in order to understand what we mean about spiritual battle or spiritual warfare, we have to understand uh, what, what the objective is. And the objective is to overcome the sin of what's called the sin of the world. And if we don't know what the sin of the world is, um, we don't really know the depth of the, of the problem. And we tend to think of the sin uh, as the naughty things we've done or the, the little unpleasantnesses of life. Uh, when in fact, um, the sin of the world is a far deeper um, network of evil and deceitfulness, which is woven right through uh, human nature, right through human history, uh, right through our relationships, right through uh, our self-perception. And, 
trying to get down to show what the sin of the world is, to show that it was therefore only the cross of Jesus Christ which could defeat it. Now, um, one of the thinkers I've drawn on is, is the French thinker René Girard, and he has done an awful lot of very interesting work about what we call the scapegoat mechanism, uh, and that is that within human history uh, and human personalities, put very simply, we tend to blame somebody else for our problems. And as long as we blame somebody else for those problems, we will con- continue to project the evil onto them, uh, and we will take it out on them uh, and consider ourselves to be good for doing so. Um, and we see this in the violence in our cities at the moment. People who are um, committing violence against property, violence, violence against their neighbor, um, and they're actually laughing and considering themselves good for doing this because they think they're good and the other person is evil. And the only way this can be defeated uh, is for when, when Jesus Christ comes in the middle of it and they treat him that way, and he says, okay, you can blame me. I'll take it. Uh, and when he takes it on, he breaks it from the inside out. Uh, you, you point out that we have been, uh, you write about, we've been given free will and we take choice for granted that desire is the engine of choice and that we have the choice of not choosing what is good. Uh, and from this knowledge of good and evil, humanity begins then to develop a sense of morality. And you indicate that this was God's great gamble. In what sense was it a great gamble? <laughs> yes, it's God's great gamble that he actually uh, gave free will to, to humanity and that we could actually reject him uh, and we could kill his son, which we did. Um, and it would still come around to his glory. And so God is taking this gamble and giving us free will. Now, why did he give us free will? Because he wants us to love him. And love has to be offered freely. It cannot be something which is forced, or it's not love. And right. so um, this is the mystery at the heart of our relationship with God, at the heart of our humanity, is will we use this freedom that he's given us in order to learn to love him and love others, or will we use this freedom simply for our own self-gratification? Right. As you noted, without choice, there is no there is no love. But Lucifer was pleased, wasn't he, that we were given this gift? Well, he was because he wanted to distort it, and he wanted to um, claim that uh, that worship that we owe to God for himself. And so um, that's where the battle began. He noticed that we had this free will. He tempted us to use it, uh, and he wants to twist it uh, and distort it uh, in any way that he possibly can. Because if he said, if you eat of the fruit, you will be like God. And he says, you have the choice. Why don't you take it? And they did take it. Uh, and the irony of that, of course, is that Adam and Eve, um, and as all of us, are already created in God's image. We don't need anything else to be like him. But um, Satan is a liar. He's the father of lies. And he set up this lie at the very beginning in order to destroy humanity if he could. What is meant by imitation desire? Well, this is one of the concepts of um, René Girard, and I, I'm glad you asked that. He calls it mimetic desire. Uh, I I just tried to use less sort of jargon, and I call it imitation desire. And that is the desire um, when we covet something that somebody else has, um, and it's actually more than wanting what they have. We actually want to take it away from them, and we want not only what they have, 
We want what they have because it represents who they are. We actually want to be who they are. So let me give you a practical example. Um, let's say my neighbor has got a fantastic new BMW car, and he lives in a great big house with a beautiful swimming pool and a, a lovely wife and everything you could possibly want. And maybe I look at him and I'm thinking, oh, I wish I had that car. You see, I, I don't really essentially want the car. I want to be who he is, who has that car. I want to be like him. And um, Gerard points out in his many writings on this topic that this uh, is what eventually leads to, to murder. So I not only want to be like that guy, and I want his car, but I want his wife, which leads to adultery. Uh, I want his uh, possessions, which leads to theft. And I actually want to be him. And I can only have all that he has if I kill him and take it. Right. <laughs> and so yeah, yes. this, you see, this uh, imitation desire, wanting to be like him, uh, is at the heart of uh, of human nature and the heart of all of our twisted desires. And it's right there at the very beginning, because right after the Garden of Eden, what is the next story that's told? It's the story of Cain killing his brother Abel. Um, and this uh, imitation desire was therefore right, right there from the very beginning. And... Um... You write about uh, imitation desire. It's the instinctual longing to be our own God and to destroy all rivals, as you have just uh, explained, But uh, and, and that it's the seed from which all evil grows. But Adam and Eve didn't want to be like God, you point out, because they were already like him. They wanted to be God. That's right. They wanted to—Satan tempted them to actually— he said you would be like God, but his real temptation was you will be your own gods. And this um, th this evil, which is woven through uh, human nature, uh, I go on to explain uh, why it is so pervasive uh, that, it, as I've just begun to explain, it actually causes every other kind of evil that takes place in the world, adultery and theft and uh, violence and killing and war and uh, every other kind of evil comes from this, springs from this uh, core of evil. And then, to make it worse, we lie to ourselves and say that we're not really like that. Uh, we're nice people. We don't do those things. Um, but as the the, the um, events in our country this last weekend have shown, all of this violence is only just below the surface. And all it takes is a, a little one incident, which is unfortunate, to, to, to strike the match to the to the fuse to set it all off, uh, and so this imitation desire, this resentment, this um, violence at the heart of humanity is is always there, uh, just below mm -hmm. the surface, uh, and we see it burst out from time to time uh, in in the in the chaos and anarchy and, and destruction of law and order. Another image that you use is that of the three-headed hound of hell, and uh, I had to be reminded of it. Um, you tell us uh, about the monster called Fluffy in the Harry Potter films, which I watch with my sister. My sister loves them, and I've grown to love them. Uh, uh, it has a serpent for a tail and guards the gates of hell against anyone trying to escape. And the three heads, you point out, represent power, pride, and prejudice. That it's it's not that I have power, but I am power and can exercise it in whatever way I want. Tell us a little bit about, about power, pride, and prejudice. 
and how yes, it poisons. I've, I've, used, yeah. I've used these various images from Greek mythology and also which reverberate into Dante and, and then down into Harry Potter. Um, and, and the three-headed hound of hell, Cherubus, uh, I, I used him as a symbol, therefore, the, for power, pride, and prejudice. And power is um, what we uh, gain for ourselves as soon as we take the choice that Satan offers us. We assume, very simply, that we do have power, and the power is the power of choice, it's free will, and therefore we also assume that because we use that power, the choice that we make must be the right choice because we made that choice. So, for instance, if I have to, a choice between an orange and a, and a rock, and I choose the orange because it's sweet and juicy, um, I assume just by having made the choice that I have made the right choice. Now, th therefore, power, the ability to make a choice, leads me next uh, to pride. Pride is not just boasting and being arrogant. Pride is the underlying rock-solid assumption that I'm right, mm. that I'm right. Of course I'm right. Of I course. made the right choices. <laughs> I chose the orange. Yes. I must be right. Therefore, this is what pride is. Pride is the overweening assumption against all comers that I am right. Now, pride, therefore, leads to prejudice because if I'm right and you have a different opinion than me, you must be wrong. It, yes. it just follows. And that's where the prejudice comes in. I'm right. You're wrong. There's no question about it. And so these three um, heads as of the hound, as I say, these three are intertwined. Power, pride, and prejudice um, lead us to all sorts of, uh, again, of selfishness and crime. And again, um, not to belabor the point, but I go on and say we learn very early that we cannot exercise all of the power that we would like because we live with other people who also have power, and some of them are more powerful than we are. So we learn good manners. We learn to restrain this three-headed beast. We learn to control ourselves. We learn to abide by the law. Um, but it only takes a little push before we begin to assert that power uh, and to assert the power of, over other people, which, of course, then ends in, in some sort of violence or another, because my power meets your power, uh, and there's going to be a clash. Right. We're the aggressive alpha male, males, you point out, uh, and that uh, pride, prejudice, and power are the unholy trinity of one foul beast called ego. And you, you note that family, society, education, and religion provide the leash we need. We practice deception and manipulate others that we end up being unhappy, and we don't know why. And let me just read from, from one example I'll pull out. Um, this is the final deception, you write, of the granddaddy of them all. This is the self-deception that conceals the power, pride, and prejudice so effectively that we are forever blind to their existence. It is religion. The Christian faith is the very thing that should wake us up to the existence of the three-headed hound of hell and make us fall on our faces in penitent horror but for many of us, religion is the very thing that ensnares us even further. Amplify on that a little bit. Yeah, that's kind of scary, isn't it? Um, yeah, it is. <laughs> I'm, and I, I've been a religious person my whole life. I'm in my 60s now, and um, I, I can see that in so many different ways, people have used religion not as a way to challenge their pride and to learn humility, 
but they've used religion as a way to bolster the fact that they are right. How many religious people do we know who have gone through and said, well, of course I'm right. I have got all the right doctrine. I've got all the right beliefs. As Catholics, I've got the right liturgy. Uh, I've got the bishop on my side. I've got my people. I've got the funding. I've got everything in place. My religion has showed me to be right. And furthermore, we're going to start taking action against all those people who are wrong. Yes, right. (laughs) This this is the classic recipe for bad religion, um, because it's using religion to bolster our pride, power, and prejudice. Uh, and 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 use it as a tool to hit people with, um, and make them feel guilty, make them feel small, and for us to come out on top. And of course, this is the ultimate evil which Jesus is caught up in in the Gospels, and that's why the Gospels are so riveting and so interesting that he comes into the midst of uh, the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes, and they are doing this very trick. They're using their religion to hold people down, to uh, keep them bound in legalism of, of taking their money, which is what a lot of bad religion does as well, yes. does as well, and um, suppressing um, the, the humility and the joy that should be there. And Jesus comes in and turns their tables over, and they decide right then, right, this guy has got to go. And we see what happens. Um, and he, the, the beautiful um, mystery of the, uh, of, the, of the cross is that Jesus takes on this evil mechanism, and he defeats it from the inside out by saying, okay, I will take this. And because he's the Son of God, he can actually defeat it from the inside out. And nothing else would. would. Nothing else could do it except that. Yeah, you're right. We we use religion to bolster our prejudices rather than challenge them. Furthermore, we do all this believing that God himself approves. He must approve of us because we are so good. We are so right and so righteous. Uh, we just have. If you, yeah, go ahead. And I'm sure that I'm sure that you and have also tried this from time to time. If you come across a religious person who's using religion uh, to bolster their pride, power, and and prejudice, you try challenging that. You you, you try poking that hornet's nest. My goodness, um, they'll come at you. Uh, and I've experienced that. And and um, uh, so this is one of the great evils in the world. And it's something which my book tries to explore in depth for people. Um, wish I could go in go into uh, so much more. We just have a couple minutes before our break. But you speak also about Medusa and her sisters and um, the three witches. And um, you spoke earlier about resentment uh, is that she represents. Um, but the, her twin sisters, you point out, are revenge and rivalry, that they are an unholy Trinity, just say something just for a minute before we go to our break uh, about these three. Yes, this is the next stage on from the power of pride and prejudice, uh, in which I say that this, uh, when we don't get our own way, it, we start developing this resentment that I was talking about. And the resentment um, also has two other aspects to it, uh, rivalry and revenge. Because if I'm resentful towards you, um, because I blame you for my problems, then I have to plan revenge. I have to try to, to, to get my own back. Uh, and this also creates a new cycle of evil, um, which, uh, again, we hide from ourselves, but is going on all the time within human nature and human society. And you write the religiously resentful, invoke God himself to support their deception in their own eyes. They are good, true, and righteous in all things. They are pleasing to God. They are his chosen people. 
their religious cause is his re- or his righteous excuse me their righteous cause is his righteous cause their campaign against the wicked is his campaign against the wicked they are doing his work they are martyrs and everyone knows god loves martyrs best of all so we're going to take our break and come back with father dwight longenecker immortal combat <laughs> 